Welcome back to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast. My name is Pastor Jeremy. And I'm Pastor George. And uh, we're back here with you on a Monday, uh, ready to uh, dig into the things of the weekend and have these conversations that pastors tend to have throughout their, their week. Uh, you know, there's times you don't tend to see us as often. The, the, what, do we do? what do we talk about when, when we're hanging out in the office? What are some of the conversations that we puzzle over or think about? Uh, that's really the point and uh, purpose of our conversations on, on this podcast, to kind of pick the, uh, the brains of a pastor or to think about or to hear these conversations that we tend to have um, when you're not around. Because we have some fun ones, and, and we really uh, often get into some interesting spaces. And, and I, I think for the last several years, uh, we, we've usually finished a conversation like this, and these, tend to ha- these have always tended to happen for us. Um, and we'll finish that conversation and be like, man, I wish we could do this um, in front of like the rest of the congregation. Like, you know, I think for a long time your dream was maybe we just have a sermon where we both are sitting on the platform and the whole sermon is this conversation. And, and logistically, that's kind of always been a challenge to think through. We've done things like that, but yeah. it, is, it is a challenge. But uh, we're a father and son pastor team, and I feel like we've both done ministry together for a very long time. Now, officially, uh, we both serve at a church uh, north of Boston. I've been here for about eight years. You've been on staff for about 10. Ten. Yeah. And uh, we, but I, I think that um, from the time that I was in college and really beginning to dig into ministry and, and that direction, we've kind of bounced things like this off one another. This conversation has been a running conversation now for almost 20 years. Exactly. And so uh, it's fun to kind of do this on an official basis after years of thinking about it and to be here with you on a podcast. And uh, that's really the, the, the whole purpose of the podcast is to, is to sit with us as we chat about these various topics. So we're glad that you're here. Uh, we began each of these. We recognized uh, not long ago that there's a vocabulary that pastors tend to have and use, and sometimes that vocabulary is so insider that you may assume we mean something, but we actually mean something else. And so we take a time to digest a, a theological term each week, um, and now it is time for this week's theological term of the week. <laughs> The Theological Term of the Week. And this week, that term is... Justice. The term is justice. Man, this one is so loaded. Crazy loaded. There are terms that we talk about, like uh, uh, a misunderstanding. You can use the same word, but depending on your... Uh, your worldview, that word can mean something drastically different. Exactly. And, and that, in our culture right now, justice is one of those words that gets wielded with impunity. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Against people, usually unjustly. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, like, in theological terms, when it gets, when we're talking about God's justice, and these are mutable terms. You, you, by now, if you're a fan of the podcast, you've heard that phrase used frequently. Maybe you've even snuck it into some of your own conversations Could with be. others. Yeah. Um, but these are, these are terms that apply to God in perfection and to all of humanity with some limitation. And, and so, um, yeah, what's this term justice mean biblically? So justice means that God will always do the right thing. He will always act appropriately. And he will always act uh, perfectly. So we there are terms that kind of load into this, like uh, the word righteous. Uh, God is a righteous God. He always does the right thing. 
justice means that his standard is always correct and always true. Uh, I, for a year, I taught uh, high school high school uh, Bible in a in a Christian school, and my favorite phrase from the students was, "That's not fair." Mm. And I would look at them and I would say, "But here's the problem: I'm I'm the teacher, I'm the authority in the room." And so fair is what I determine it to be, not what you determine it to be. Mm-hmm. And God, God is not just fair, he's just. He has a standard of righteousness, and everything that, is, that he does is right. And then not only is everything that he does is right, he will actually always keep to his standard of justice. That's that perfection piece, right? That's the perfection piece, exactly. So... So God is a standard. God will always uphold the standard. He will never, he'll never change his idea of what the standard should be. So when we say that God is just, you can count on him and you can count on his rulings. He will always rule the same way. Um, he, you kind of see a little bit of that in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Where, where God says, for, where Paul writes about God and says that uh, he has, he's no respecter of persons. Mm. So God's standard of justice is the same for a rich man as it is for a poor man. God's standard of justice is the same for a black man as it is for a white man. God's standard of justice is the same for a male as it is for a female. Uh, God has a specific standard, and he upholds his standard. Mm. I'm actually reminded of the uh, of the story Jesus tells of the manager who goes and gathers workers through the day. As yes. an interesting perspective into God's justice, you know, you have he gets the guys early in the morning to come work in the vineyard, promises them a day's wage, and they go about working. And then he goes back out, finds more workers a few hours later, and he keeps adding these people throughout the day, even toward the last hour of the day. And each person promises them a day's wage to come and work. But he doesn't. That's the thing. That's the thing. If you read, he says to the last group, for example, when he comes to them, he says, he says, just go and work in my vineyard. Yeah. Doesn't make a promise to them. He just says, go and work in my vineyard. So when, when the workers are coming and he pays them all a day's wage, the first guys say, well, wait a second, that's not fair. Uh, I worked all day. This guy worked an hour. How come you're paying him the same amount? The response is uh, the, the response is the response of justice. I made a commitment to you. These people made a commitment to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, they made a commitment without a standard but I'm going to operate in my standard, God says, and I'm going to show them justice. Mm. I'm going to give them more than what they deserve. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot in here, but I think we, we manipulate this term of justice all the time. All of the time, yeah. Uh, because we start changing. Ultimately, this is our big problem as idolaters and as people who flirt with God's image because it's in us, but we misuse it because we're all sinful is that we will take we will we will create a standard of justice that's the issue and then apply it unjustly exactly the issue really is that we have no standard when god says he's just he has an accurate standard by which he measures all of humanity 
And you know, let, let's just put it let's just put it bluntly. We all we all fail. Mm-hmm. We don't come up to standard. Yeah, no one. No one. That's does. the essence of the gospel. Yeah, exactly. No one does. It's it's Christ that makes up the distinction and makes up the difference in us uh, to make us all just. Right, the just uh, shall live by faith, and the one who makes us just is Jesus. Right. So He justifies us to to be so justice is to make up or to bring up to a standard and uh, and we we make up our own standards we make up our own rules we have our own system of justice which is always unjust because mm-hmm. we can't number 1 Romans 2 says we can't keep our own standards so if i tell people that uh, if if you know my favorite illustration of that is you're driving down the highway at 65 miles an hour and a state trooper blows past you at 85 miles an hour hmm. uh, and you look at that and you say well he would pull me over if he did that and it's he's not bound by that rule he's not bound by that that code um, I had an interesting time one time that I saw as unjust oh look at that I'm always with the text forgot. Yeah. The rules, the of, rules podcasting. of podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk to her later. Um, the uh, a, a situation that I considered unjust, and that was that uh, there was a, uh, there was a, I was driving down a three lane highway one time, and there was a state trooper who was sitting, driving in the left lane. And he was driving, at, let, let's say the speed limit was 65. He was driving at like 68 miles an hour mm, mm-hmm. in the left lane. Mm. And it caused everybody in the other two lanes to just kind of stack up. Stack up. Because nobody wanted to pass this guy. Nobody wanted to pass this trooper on the right. That mm-hmm. would have been a violation, right? Nobody, nobody wanted to, vi- to do that. Nobody wanted to go... 69 or 70 miles an hour to get ahead of him we, we were all just kind of stacking up and i looked in my rear view mirror and it was like a parade i mean there was traffic backed up uh, it, at least as far as i could see on the highway and finally this one guy this one guy drops out from behind the state trooper into the middle lane and drives ahead of him and sure enough the state trooper's lights turn on, and he pulled him over, and he freed the rest of us. That that guy, <laughs> hero. He hero. was a hero. Yeah, he's not the one we. He's the one we deserve. What is that like phrase? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that was unjust. Yeah, it's he, entrapment. It was it's entrapment. Like, yeah. Right. None of us sees that as. So here's the thing, God is just. He doesn't entrap us. He may test us. Mm-hmm. He may put us to the test to see if we're worthy uh, up to his standard uh and sadly we so often fail that standard uh, but god holds us to a standard and he he may test us mm-hmm. but he doesn't entrap us yeah god doesn't put us into a place where uh where there isn't a way of escape yeah i think there's a difference between entrapment and testing right and entrapment is something done for the benefit of the lawgiver and testing is something done for the benefit of the law observer. Right. Right? Like, testing is for my benefit, not God's. God right. already knows me, and he already knows where I am. He doesn't need to run a test to find, to evaluate me. He's aware. Yes, yes. But I go through testing 
for my own benefit and for the benefit of others around me. Yes. And so part of God's justice on his creation is putting his creation through testing so that they have a better understanding of where they measure up according to his line of justice. And they, we were often reminded in those moments of testing that we fall far short, fall far short. There it is. That's yeah, tricky to say there, right? Um, and so testing is for our benefit, not God's. Um, and, uh, and, but, you know, this entrapment thing, like to just like kind of get you, like God doesn't need that. He knows you. He, he knows. God, God knows well enough that he could get any of us. Like he's not up there trying to smite us or cause us to stumble so that he can then punish us. Um, you know, I, we, I, we're watching Seinfeld again cause it's on Netflix out. Right. And, and, you know, they, you know, we started and now we can't stop. And we're watching the, uh, um, the pilot episode where they finally released this pilot that they've been working on for NBC. Yes. About nothing. Yeah. And, uh, um, the, the one character, George, is saying that this clearly won't work because God doesn't want me to be successful. And I know that God huh. doesn't want me to be successful. And they're like, well, you, you don't even believe in God. And he's like, well, I do when it's for stuff that's bad. And uh, like, How accurate. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's us, right? Like we think of God and his justice as, as this cosmic police officer who is always there trying to trap us and get us in trouble. Yeah. God's aware of you. He knows you're a mess. He knows you don't measure up to the standard. That's why he sent Jesus. Uh, Yes. um, The testing is for our own benefit and our own growth and our own affirmation and confirmation. Um, And uh, and God applies that testing justly. So on a human perspective, uh, we talk about justice and... God establishes very clearly in the scriptures that there are there are multiple levels of justice, uh, which maybe some of you are saying, well, how is that just? <laughs> and remember the word is standard. The concept is a standard. So if God is just, then he actually has rules, if you will, for how I engage uh, others and how other things operate. So for example, uh, the book of Proverbs which a lot of people get lost in, and great book, Proverbs 31 chapters. So that means that if you read a, uh, a, a chapter of the book of Proverbs every day in a 31-day month, you will read the entire book. And I actually see it as a great way of starting a, a Bible reading uh, devotional uh, aspect because a lot of people get lost. They're like, oh, I, I missed my devotions today. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. And should I read the chapter that I just missed? Should I read the chapter that just the next chapter? Should I skip that? And, and I tell people, well, start by reading the book of Proverbs. Read it according to the chapter or read it according to the day of the, of the month. And then uh, if you miss a day, which you probably will somewhere along the line, uh, just stay on top of reading the day of the month, and just keep doing it. Do it for a year, if you will. And eventually what happens is you're going to read all 31 chapters. Several times. Several times, and you'll get the gist of what's going on. And what's important is that the book of Proverbs really lays out some very interesting concepts when it comes to justice. So, for example, you and I as individuals have a different standard of justice than um, my state or my country have. Uh, My responsibility of justice from Scripture and from Proverbs is along the lines of, um, I need to have 
one set of one set of weights and measures. Weights and measures. Yeah. I, I need uh, I need one set in the bag mm-hmm. so that everybody gets the same thing from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's a concept that that Solomon is railing against in the Proverbs that that uh, there was you know you would keep one set of weights for regular people. And then you would keep a light, uh, a heavier set of weights for rich people because rich people could afford it. Mm-hmm. And interesting that the concept of justice in the Proverbs is that people are anti-rich mm. and uh, and not necessarily anti-poor. Although there are there are other standards, right? Like if a poor man if a poor man puts up his uh, his coat, his only set of clothes. For a uh, for a bond or for a loan, uh, first of all, Solomon says he's a fool because <laughs> he's risking everything. He he's has. risking everything he has. Uh, but the second thing he, that uh, that Solomon says is, if he gives up something like that, give it back to him at the end of the day, because you have a responsibility to even the poorest of people to not take all that they have. So there's there's justice. There's a personal concept of justice. Uh, if I see somebody who's poor, according to the book of Proverbs, I have a responsibility to mitigate their poverty mm-hmm. until they demonstrate to me that they are a fool and don't know what to do with my wealth, do with wealth in their life. And at that point, the concept of justice is let that person alone and let them starve. Mm. Let them. Yeah, there's this sense in which you, you yeah, you'll come in to rescue to a point and then once they've they continue to earn the concept you have to let them feel the consequences of their foolishness at some point. Exactly. Right. right. Whereas, you know, the concept of justice for um for like government. Um government government justice is non emotional. Mm-hmm. Government justice is well you did wrong, therefore you're going to pay the penalty. Uh, that's the that's the concept of uh, the whip is designed for the back of the fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the government has a responsibility of of holding people accountable accountable for their for their uh, their sin, their inaction, their inequities. Uh, without bending. Without bending, exactly. Yeah. So, like, there's things so like on an individual level our sense of justice is an informed one where it's applied based on the circumstance in which we know and we apply that justice carefully with wisdom. Right. And the the larger entity, the government per se, just has to, because they can't be personal, they have to abide by that singular set stance of justice and apply yes. it universally. Yeah. And we see, the, we see what happens when that doesn't work. Right? We see that culturally. We see... And we can read that into a lot of ways. We can sniff when something feels unjust, and then we can apply that to other circumstances, and it makes the entire thing questionable whether it acts in justice or not. Right? It's like we we're seeing that culturally now. Right. Where, like, depending on where you land with uh, the young man in the Midwest who was at a riot and who was recently acquitted, no matter where you land on that, we all sniff that circumstance with a level of. Um, distrust yes 
because we have seen a government work out of step with its universally applied justice right. system. It, and so either way, right, you, you, you approach that circumstance with either saying the government doesn't know what it's doing and it, there's no way it will do the right thing here. Right. Well, you're, you're looking at, in, in that case, you're, or in those circumstances, perhaps the situation is you're looking at a government that doesn't have one set of weights. Mm -hmm. They have two bags. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And, and you can't have two bags. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, as far as the wisdom for how we handle this individually, um, I was thinking the illustration kind of in this term. Like, I, I recently um, finished my basement um, as, a, as a long project at our house and had a lot of friends help out. But, you know, I did a lot of the framing. I did the framing work, right? And the standard when you're making it, when you're framing out a wall is level oh, and plumb, right? Like that you that want, works. Yeah, it makes for better. It makes it makes the drywall process a little easier when your when your boards are level, right and true. And so, sometimes I will have a a beam in the wall, like you know, I, I put together the wall, and then you stand it up and you tack it into the concrete floor with like you know a cool little tool that makes a lot of noise, and and then you kind of double check everything once you're you know you do it beforehand, but you also do it afterward to make sure that everything is is true. And there were times where I would find because of a bend in a board or something that it was a little bit out. Oh. And so in those moments of it being a little bit out of standard, uh, the answer was to take um, a, uh, a saw and cut the nail and just tap that board into standard. Right? But there were other times where it was so out of standard and so warped that I would have to remove the board and actually cut it more in order to make it align, right? Right, right. But when I know what my standard is, that bubble's got to land between the two black lines, then I can apply justice properly to each board so right. that they all end up in the same space. And I think our responsibility, you know, that personal application of justice that we send to other people or that we give toward other people is not to necessarily take them circumstance by circumstance and apply differing standards of justice depending on our relationship with that person or whether or not we feel bad for them. It, it is to look at the standard of justice that we all need to align to and then apply differently with wisdom standards that are, or practices that will help that individual fall in line with the standard. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. So that's so our justice role. Right. If you want a good primer on justice, then uh, the Old Testament book of Amos. Yes, love that book. Great yeah. book. Yeah, great book. And if you want speaking to speaking of building things, yeah, plumb yeah, lines. plumb lines. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So uh, go to Amos, read Amos. That'll that give you an idea of what justice one, looks like. One of my favorite insults in all of scripture. Yeah. In Amos, right? Because he calls. These wealthy women, yes, who uh, offer sacrifices but don't care for the poor, as the was it the cows of Bashan. The cows of Bashan, yes. Yeah, it's, it's yes. <laughs> does not pull punches there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, he says, you know, that they recline on their on their silk couches, and I always have this picture of a far side cow sitting on a. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Yeah. So justice is a fascinating topic, and it's it's definitely a huge one. Uh, but the point here is that, that God really creates the standard of justice, and then thankfully, our God can fully and perfectly live up to his perfect standard of justice. So it's two-sided. 
his standard of justice is perfect and he can perfectly abide by it. Yes. And then as humans, we all have a sense of justice. We can tell when something is out of alignment, but because we are all crooked, it's really hard to tell when something is properly aligned. Like we need a standard outside of ourselves to come up with in order actual. to come up with the actual thing. Like we can't just look at this, you know, going back to my wall analogy, I can't just look at the board next to the one I'm trying to true to try and true them both because they could both be out of alignment. I need some sort of outward justifier that will, that is consistent that I can align all of the boards to. Exactly. Right. right. Hey, let's, let me just do a quick um, additional concept. And that is uh, you use the word vocabulary and this is something we all need to think very carefully about as believers and that is uh, let's make sure that we're using words with biblical meaning rather than the meaning that the world around us wants to put on them hmm. uh, we we're doing these theological terms of the week and and we're trying to put them into a biblical perspective but just to be careful in your daily life because people will use words mm-hmm like the word justice uh, or the word salvation. Right, and they will trigger a, a response from us. Because we have one view of what that word means, but we have absolutely no idea what that person means by that word. Yeah, yeah. So Don't let you, it be weaponized against you. Exactly. So, you know, if somebody says that they're pursuing justice in this world... Uh, or social justice, which kind of automatically puts should put your radar up. radar up. I think it's important for us as Christians to get a definition of terms. Mm-hmm. To just, I mean, just honestly, just uh, candidly say, I, you know, you keep on using this word. <laughs> I do not think you know what it means. But, yeah, that that the idea of social justice. I am passionate for social justice. Yes, but from the perspective of the justifier. Yes, right. and, and from a biblical and perspective, that, right? Of, and, of, yeah. and so, but I can usually when that term is used, it's not used by somebody who has that same level of passion for God's standard, and so we can be in very different different places on how to apply justice, absolutely, because of our differing standards. Yeah. It's just important. And it's important for us as Christians to also use our words properly. Now that you know the meaning, use it accurately. This yes. is key, you know, and and use it intentionally. Speak intentionally. Don't speak um, um, from a common place, right? We talked about that recently, yeah, right? Don't be vulgar. Don't be, don't be vulgar. Don't be common. Use things with accuracy. Um, and that's, that's that's an important thing. It's part of it's part of our call to justice that yes. we would that we would be accurate with our words and use them well. The theological term of the week. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, that's our theological term of the week. And that leads me into a conversation that we had talked about earlier. Um, last Yesterday, in, um, we, I'm mixing up you know, our pre-show ideas here, but yesterday we were, you know, in the sermon, you were talking a bit about um, sin. And, and sin is a logical flow out of this conversation of justice because sin is that moment in which you are out of alignment with the true justifier, right? Right. Like that is all all sin is when you have missed that mark. Um, And that is really the term sin means missing the mark. Missing the mark. 
And, yeah. and we were talking about a particularly, uh, I was going to say egregious sin, but it's really just an interesting sin that you come across in Joshua because on its surface, it doesn't seem all that bad. Like, yeah. especially with um, the way that it is dealt with, it seems like a huge overreaction. Like, yeah, it, actually, to me, a as a Western thinker, that is a that. shocking response that this man, like, shouldn't he, since he came, but if you're reading Joshua, they, they, they have, they have Joshua taken, 7. Yeah, the, the walls of Jericho are down. They have gone in. We talked about just war recently. They have come and brought judgment on this city that has, has been, um, like this judgment was pronounced upon it 400 years prior. God gave them time for correction. They never corrected. God used his, his people as the, uh, res- the just response to that. So, and in the process of that, they're supposed to decimate the city, which has all kinds of different theological pieces to this, including the concept of tithe is built into this too. Right, um, right. Because they're right. giving this first city to God entirely. Um, but um, this one guy sees a few valuable things in the process and Achan. hides them to himself. And, and Achan hides these things under his tent. Uh, they go on to the next city. They're, they're embarrassed by the loss. People die. And then um, their response as they search out who did this, eventually, as he's asked, like Achan comes forward, yes, I did in fact sin, and here's why. And in my modern perspective on the story, when I read Achan finally coming forward and saying, you're right, I sinned, here are the things, that's the moment where forgiveness should happen, right? Like that is the moment where like, they should, like there should be this penitent heart, he should offer these things up as a sacrifice. God should take them and they should be destroyed. And then we should all forgive Achan and we should move on. You would think. But it's, the story doesn't go that way. It goes drastically differently. Right. And instead, you have Achan and his, his immediate family dead at right. the end of the story. Yep. Uh, brutally so. Yes. And, and then the, the, the nation is purified and is able to move on. And this whole idea of sin and especially this story about sin feels so extreme to me. But at the same time, I think it gives us a better picture on what God feels about sin than maybe some other stories. Isn't it? You use the word extreme. Yeah. And and I think that that's the character. We, we don't see sin as extreme. I agree. And I think some of that is because we are so um, grace-oriented. Right. So we, I made the comment yesterday that, uh, you know, Israel at the time has 632,000 soldiers and 631,999 do the right thing. Yeah. And the focus isn't on the 631,999. It's, it's on this one. A- and I made the analogy that when you are a fine-tuned machine there is a there is a level of precision that is just expected of you mm-hmm. i think that god what god is doing in the book of joshua and in israel at the time is that he is fine tuning them he's he's seeing them as precision he's seeing them as walking with god in a very very close place and I think that because of that, that sin, that one little sin that we think of as a little sin, 
it's grievous because mm-hmm. God is expecting some precision. Yeah, I um, I recently bought an old Jeep. Yes, you did. And uh, my dream car, and uh, which not is not a precise tool, um, per <laughs> se. <laughs> Right, it's, it's not it's like, more old, like a sledgehammer. Yeah, it's like yeah. an old Ferrari or something. Like it's an old Jeep, but with that Jeep, um, the guy who sold it to me also sold it with a second motor, um, and I have this motor in the garage. And as I was bringing it home, I noticed that across the side of the motor, where the exhaust uh, and the intake gets attached, um, in that spot instead are all of these pieces of tape that are across those open holes. Oh. Oh, and I remember looking at like at first I thought like oh, that's interesting. Why is why is that taped up? It's just an old motor. Like why would you do that? But you know it dawned on me later as some of the tape kind of frayed away on the trip home. I was like the reason that's there is because if anything gets through that hole into the motor and then I install the motor into my Jeep. I will ruin the motor, right? right? Because let it in. even though it's not, it's this is not a high end instrument. This engine, it's just an old, you know, this one is like an old Chrysler engine, so definitely not precision. <laughs> but <laughs> um, you know, it's you know this old like you know they're 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 renowned for their durability, but if a contaminant that's big enough gets into that hole it destroys the whole engine, right? And is that a sense of what's going on here? And you're not even talking about a major contaminant. Right. It could be something very, very small. Like it could just be like a piece of mouse poop, right? Like it could be something small. Yeah. And that would really, really mess things up. Yep, absolutely. And and I think like um, this is the issue with Israel at this point, right? Like you when you have only one person out of more than a half million people who chooses to sin, it becomes very obvious. And... And so the response has to be very firm. And, but even still, like I think about like post story, like post Joshua, you get into Judges. Uh, yeah. Right? It's the exact opposite. Like it's so bad that the one person who's good stands out. Right. But see, that's the thing. And see, God doesn't like stone. It's just this whole story is hard. Yeah. So that's the thing, though. If. I think that there's kind of a beginning and an ending perspective on that. Mm. Like, um, is as Israel's coming out of the land, uh, and they build the ta- they build a tabernacle, uh, and God says, "Here's how you're going to honor me in this tabernacle. You're, you're going to come in in the morning, and you're going to say prayers, burning some incense, and in the evening, you're going to come in burning some incense, and that's the only time you're coming in here." Mm-hmm. And like, like a week later, two weeks later, short time later, um, Aaron's two, two sons, Nadab and Abihu, decide that they're going to go in at lunchtime and make incense. And God says, nope, this is not on my list. Bam. Yeah. Slaughters the two of them. Yeah. You know, and then, and then holds Aaron accountable by saying, Aaron, don't you dare mourn for your sons. They did the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, don't. Don't you can't mourn for them. You can't. You can't. You can't. Uh, you can't touch them. You can't see them. You're holy to me. Your sons did the wrong thing. I held them accountable. Yeah. I think it's because it's a beginning moment. It's kind of like uh, uh, w- when I first when I when I f- 
when we first started playing golf, hmm. mm-hmm. there was, the, you know, there's a specific way you're supposed to hold your golf club. You're supposed to, and and the the key the key fingers right are your your thumb and index finger on each hand, with a little bit of pressure from your pinky, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're just supposed to hold that club in gentleness, if you will, and 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 feel the club as it swings through your hand. And the worst thing you could do is grab your grab that golf club like a baseball bat and wrap it into the palm of your hand and try and hit the ball because you're not going to feel the ball. Mm-hmm. You're not going to you're not going to hit the ball right. And it's hard to break that habit of how you are gripping your club, and it's hard to get the feel of just pinching it with your pinky and forefinger or with your your thumb and forefinger and. I do this, by the way, with uh, better better illustration because I'm a terrible golfer. <laughs> um, I, I I I hold a, a knife, a kitchen knife. This is this is my bailiwick. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hold a kitchen knife. I I use the pinch method, and I'll pinch the the blade just above the tine, and I'll hold the back uh, the back of the knife with my pinky, and I chop. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, you slice, people don't, don't get this when you, when you're using a knife, it's better to chop, slide the knife forward than it is to pull it backward. We're mm-hmm. also, I, we have this idea that we're supposed to pull it backward and I'll see people in kitchens. Yeah. You can instantly tell the difference between somebody who knows how to wield oh, a knife yeah, and somebody who doesn't. Absolutely. And it's yeah. like, how do I retrain this person? Right, you also, like, and then you have, like, because of that, like, just that one, when you know how to use the tool properly, you can probably guess, like, how good of a cook that person is. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. And there may be, like, it, it's at least going to tint your your view of that person as a cook. Absolutely, and it all begins with the knife work, and it all begins with who taught this person how to use a knife, and now how do I untrain their bad stuff Mm-hmm. And put in the good stuff, mm-hmm. and that's the harsh. That's the harsh lesson. How do I take the, how do I take the bad habits out of their life? Mm-hmm. So imagine, imagine if if God had allowed Achan to get away with this at Jericho, right? First of all, he would have violated his own standard of justice, right? Which he can't do. Which he cannot do. Somebody has to pay the price. Uh, unfortunately, there are thirty six men. In Israel, right, and when you bring them into killed. perspective, when you bring them into perspective, the the um, the punishment of Achan makes more sense. I think. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like this man is directly responsible for the deaths of thirty six people. The first, they had, they are the first um, Israeli soldiers to die in over three conflicts where they've had. I mean, they beat Og, and they beat and they beat uh, what is it, Sidon. Uh, both of those guys, without a single loss, there's not a single loss in Jericho, mm-hmm. um, and yet, and that because of Achan, thirty-six men die in, mm-hmm. in the attack on Ai, which was a smaller city. Mm-hmm. And then you have this aspect of it too. You have Achan, who has seen God do amazing, amazing stuff. Right, he's been in the front row for all of this. Right, and you have Rahab. Now, who's part of, w- of the Israeli camp 
who, without seeing God actually work in her life, but seeing God observed in other people's lives, has said, I want that God to be my God. Mm -hmm. And she's left her city, she's left everything to follow God. And then we have Achan, who has no faith whatsoever, and says, you know, God's not going to miss this. Mm -hmm. You know, what what is God going to do with this suit from Shinar? Right. And, and I think that that's, that's the other aspect of it, too, and that is that God, God can't just let people get away with stuff. That's not just. Mm-hmm. So he has to hold Aiken accountable. So then what do you do with the people who seem to get away with stuff? Um, I think you see some of that in David in the Psalms because uh, you know, David struggles with that. Uh-huh. Um, he he struggles with uh, God. Why is it that the why is it that the the wicked seem to do so well? I, I I remember reading that chapter in the early Miami Vice days. <laughs> okay, okay, that. So this is back when I was like in high school and watching Miami Vice on TV and watching watching these guys who the. The whole, the whole tenant, the whole as- aspect of Miami Vice is drug dealers in Miami with these two two dudes who somehow, as policemen, still have cigarette boats and stuff like that. But <laughs> uh, y- yeah, you know, and you see the lifestyle of these of these drug kingpins in this television show, Miami Vice. They always end up dead. Hmm. And, and I think that that's the, the thing that you have to grasp about God's justice. You might see somebody who has benefited from wrongdoing, mm-hmm. uh, but God assures David that it's, it's short-term. It's short-term. Uh, God is still going to hold them accountable. Um, and and even if it's not, if, even if they're not held accountable for it now, they're going to be held for accountable for it in eternity. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the peace that you get in those things. Yeah, but you have to do right, right, because God acts justly and expects justice from us. Yes, yeah. Right? Going back to that story, right? Like the rest of Israel still has to act with justice and integrity. You know. From the Aiken story forward, right, and they have to hold they have to hold Aiken accountable. Yeah, and to some extent, his family suffers because of him. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about this. Somebody was talking to me about this the other day or yesterday because they were struggling with um, all of the family. You know why? Why did the family have to die? Right. Why right? can't it just be Aiken? And and I said, so so how does that work if? Um, if Aiken dies, but his family doesn't, and like in later days, it's like, oh, this this guy's a descendant from Aiken, mm-hmm. and suddenly Aiken's descendants become popular, or oh, you know, God didn't hold them accountable for this, or or uh, I, I think the illustration I used is, what if Aiken had a sheep that wasn't killed and thrown into that pile? Because remember. All of his everything, everything, all of his possessions, all everything. of his possessions. Yeah, they're all destroyed. And can you imagine if there's now a breed of sheep called Aiken sheep, 
because this this sheep had been a descendant of Achan's flock, and now Achan's name is associated with this this maybe a sheep that has uh, a specific type of wool. God wiped his name out. Yeah. So here's what what is interesting to me. Compare that with Korah and his rebellion in um, the book of Numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, this some people are out there going Korah. You know, you're, you're so Korah is this is this fellow who challenges Moses' leadership, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a Levite just like Moses, and he says he says uh, Moses is leading us wrong. Uh, we should be in the land by now. This whole 40 years of wandering, this is Moses' fault. It has nothing to do with God. And, uh, and Korah establishes a rebellion. And in that rebellion, God holds Korah accountable. And this is, this is a pretty crazy moment in the book of Numbers, mm-hmm. because what God does is he says, he has Moses say to all of the people, you can either identify with Korah or you can identify with me, and here's what you need to do. If you do not want to be part of what Korah is doing, come and stand with me. Mm-hmm. A line in the sand moment, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's a real line in the sand because what happens next is that the scripture says that there's an earthquake and the ground opens up and Korah and 21,000 other people fall into the ground and then the ground closes up around them. Mm-hmm really, really wild. But have you ever looked into the book of Psalms? Yeah, there's a pretty prolific group of people. And there is a pretty prolific group of people who God redeemed in that, who are part of the Levitical clan who write music, and they signed their music as the sons of Korah. Mm-hmm. Which, maybe this has something to do with music pastors, you know? Maybe they've got to be careful about it. Anyway, uh, Korah is honored by his descendants because even though he was dumb and challenged the authority that God had given Moses and in so doing established God's authority mm-hmm. in this world, his family was not held accountable for it mm-hmm. because they walked away from and disowned their father in a moment where God said, make a choice. Mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder if Aiken's family was willing to say, we're going to stand with Aiken. Yeah, and that's just not in the story. Just not in the story. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the way it is with any sin. We talked about this in that, in that step, those steps that I talked about, that a lot of times we get stuck in the in the remorse stage, like I'm sorry about the fact that I've sinned, and all we focus on is that I'm sorry about the fact that I sinned, and we don't we don't name it, we don't review it, we don't recognize it, and then we don't release it, we don't let it go, we don't say I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a key ingredient in dealing with sin in our lives is letting it go. Mm. Uh, disowning it, walking away from it. Uh, what Israel did on that day when they, when they stoned Achan, burned everything with fire, and then piled up more rocks on top of the rocks that they had piled up on top of the rocks, <laughs> is they said, we don't want anything to do 
with this sin. Mm -hmm. And we don't want anything to do with this thing that's going to take us away from the direction that we're supposed to go in. And that's what we miss. We get so caught up with, why would God hold Israel accountable for the sin of one man? God is just. He's going to hold us all accountable for our sin. Right. For every sin. Right. You know, when 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 the when the final judgment comes and every man stands before God according to to Revelation 21. We're all going to stand before God for all of our sin. The book is going to be opened and those who are redeemed are going to be sent into heaven, but those who are not the scripture says every idle word is going to be held accountable for. Mm-hmm. God, God, ho- and so that's why it's significant. You have you have aching moments in your life. You got to let them go. You got to walk away from it. Yeah. And uh, and we spend too much time mourning over it and not enough time getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. You have to cast aside and move on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's, man, there's just, there's so much in that conversation. Um, And I think, you know, we're talking in the justice conversation about this idea of testing. And in a sense, this is an opportunity for God to test Israel also. Yeah. Yeah. And the testing is not, again, the testing is not to trap Israel. The testing is to create a landmark moment for them that they can recall and look back upon with how God operates and lives. It's also a way for them to decide. Like Joshua and the Israelites have to decide to punish Achan on God's behalf in this circumstance. Yeah, what if they had all just God said, doesn't, oh, this is not a moment where God opens the ground. No, no, that's right. I mean, what if they had just said, oh, you know, it's just a suit. It's just, yeah, I, do you feel bad again? Can we burn that now? Can we, can yeah. we just, yeah. Can we just move that over into the tabernacle and just forget that this happened? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you're right. It's a test. It's an opportunity for Israel to say, are we truly going to believe God? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and here's God saying, I want you to hold this man accountable. And, and, I mean, you know, he's like, give glory to God, Joshua says. And he says, yep, I did it. Mm-hmm. I did it. And at that point, we've got a lot of people who I'm sure even in Israel, because we have it in evangelical Christianity, they're like, oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. He, it's he all better now. He confessed it. Yeah. Yeah, he gave glory to God, which just means, you know, in Old Testament language, it just means, do you swear to tell the truth? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, I did it. Oh, okay, let's stone you. Yeah. And there's all kinds of people like, oh, no, no, no. Are you willing to follow God? Yeah, yeah. Hard things. Are you willing to do hard things for God? Yeah, and that's the piece that keeps coming back, I think, in in our own lives. Are we willing to be so fully dedicated to to this gospel that we will do hard things? Um. I was teaching our uh, youth group students recently about, um, I was, we were teaching through a story in Luke where, where Peter and James and John leave the family business yeah. to follow him. And the track I took with this is a little bit different than other things I've taught before. I, I was saying with, the, with our students, I was teaching this about this concept of degree of transfer. And in scripture, 
there's a thing called degree of transfer where you look at a passage and you as the reader have to make a decision. Is this, does this exist specifically for a, a particular person in time, but doesn't necessarily apply to me? Does this story exist to teach me some sort of principle, but I don't need to apply it directly? Or does this story exist for something that I need to actually do myself? Right? So this is, this is the thing that we all need to do when we approach scripture. Is this, does this just here to teach me a principle or do I need to literally do this thing? And so I was asking these students, like, Jesus calls these people away from their security. James and John, you know, likely, you know, their, their dad, Zebedee, is probably a really wealthy guy. I was talking about how he is likely, he's like the guy who owns the, the fishing company, that does like charters and like has multiple boats and like his name is on everything like Zebedee's fish. You know, when you go to the market, like, like based on where he lives in town, the people he knows, Zebedee's probably pretty wealthy. Long John Zebedee. Yeah. (laughs) And then like, and Peter is kind of the opposite, right? Like we know he's got a family because his mother-in-law has just been healed like a few verses earlier. Um, And he's kind of like this blue collar guy who runs his own construction truck, right? Like, and it's just like he's like the handyman guy who's saved up, has finally has his own boat, and like that's kind of the sense we get from. But both of them need to leave something really Big. substantial behind to follow Jesus. Like they've got this plan, they have this stability, they have people that rely on them, and you know. James and John are at this point where they're running a business. Their dad's probably at that space where he needs to be taken care of by their work. Peter's got a family he's got to take care of, and they're leaving all of that security and establishment behind to follow Jesus. And I was asking the students, like, does this mean, do we read a story like this and say, how great were those people? Aren't they wonderful? Like, isn't it an amazing thing that God would call these people? And man, I am just moved by their response. Or are we supposed to read something in Scripture and say, that's the kind of standard God expects of me, that I will leave my security behind, I will leave my plans behind, and I will pursue him in the same way. And when we come into, when we look at Scripture, we have to make that decision about everything we read. And based on what we know, we've talked about already, based on what God's standards are, my guess is that his he would want us to approach sin with the same sort of perspective that he has of it. Right, right. That it would be something that we would be horrified by, something that we would quickly put to death, and then something we would quickly move on from as changed people. And that's really what you get with this story. You have a people. Who, you have a you have a people who are horrified by Achan's sin. They quickly respond and put it to death, and then they quickly move on in the direction they're supposed to go, right? I, I, I read a thing years ago about how to raise your kids, and it was talking about how, like, with kids, you should raise them with a video game mentality. When you play video games, if you make an error, it's boom, instantly game over. Now start again and try again. Right. And, right. Uh, and I think we kind of need to operate that way with, with, our own, with our spiritual lives too. When we come into a moment where we have sinned, it needs to be boom, instant game over. This sin is not who I am. I need to put it to death. I need to recognize it for what it is. It is done. It is buried. It is, it is, it is gone. Now that it is done, buried, and it is gone, I will move forward in the direction that I, have, that I should have been moving all along so I can find success. Yeah, that's why we always operated. When we raised 
you guys. That's why we always operated with a corporal punishment philosophy. We we spanked. Yeah. We, we, Ouch. Yeah, we did on a regular basis. I still talk to my therapist about that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> and uh, and part of the reason that we did that is that um, a spanking is momentary. Right. Uh, it doesn't linger. You know, if you decide to ground your if you decide to ground your child, or take something away for a period of time, then all of that discipline, all of that punishment, because at that point it becomes punishment. It's no longer discipline. Mm -hmm. That punishment lasts throughout the entire grounding or throughout the entire time. So you don't get, you don't take care of the issue in a momentary moment. If, you, if you've decided to ground your 14-year-old for two weeks, then you have to deal with two weeks of pain for yourself, not two weeks of pain for them. And, and there's absolutely no reason to do that. It, you should keep it immediate and then bring about forgiveness and deal with, deal with confession, forgiveness, remorse, all of those things, letting go, all of those things have to be cycled quickly mm. because mm. if you hold on to them, then you prevent success. Man, that's a whole other podcast in that conversation. It is. It is. And we're nearing the end of this one. Right. So maybe we hold on to that idea for a future time, like the idea of discipline. Because that comes out of this. It really it is does. the next conversation, right? Like there's, and with discipline, I think of discipline in terms of punishment, but then there's also discipline in terms of creating a pattern of change. Right. Right. And maybe we tease that out a bit the next time we gather. Okay. Um, Which is going to be a little. Uh, yeah. So this is good. Right. So warning. Right. I'm away um, over the weekend. It's it, we're approaching. We're approaching the United States Thanksgiving holiday this week. Um, that's that's going to be in a few days for us. I have a tradition that I've established with some friends where I go to the farm and I hunt over in this weekend. In pursuit of Bambi. Yeah. <laughs> His dad. I, used to, I, I go after Bambi's father. Usually. Okay. Yeah. Um, so is it weird that Bambi is a male, but we've normally named girls Bambi? I don't know any Just Bambis. A That's like a thing from the 70s. I guess. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I'll be away. Uh, I'll be away next Monday. But when you get when you get back from the trip, we'll 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 record again, and uh, maybe we'll hit this topic a little more in depth, talking about this concept of discipline. And what do we do with that? Because it is, it's, a, it's a place we're not going to be able to go in our sermon series. We're moving into our Advent time. But it is kind of this logical next step in the conversation of pursuing success, is creating discipline um, out of punishment, perhaps. Um, and so maybe we can, we can walk into that a little bit more next time we're together. That sounds good to me. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. We hope that you and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you celebrate it. And guess what? If you don't celebrate it officially, celebrate it unofficially. Take a day. And then the next time, whenever you're listening to this podcast, gather your family, have some opportunity to thank God together for the blessings you have in life. That is, is one of the ways that we celebrate this holiday. And uh, practice it. You don't have to wait for a specific calendar day to do that. Go grab some like lunch meat turkey and then have a time of Thanksgiving. Yum. And uh, we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast with Pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Artwork by Caitlin Gallagher, music by San Demetrius, and engineering help from Ashley Gallagher. To find out more about us, head to marshcorner.com.